Hello and welcome to the Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. This is episode 35, where we're going to be talking about diabetes type 1. It has been a long time since I released an episode, so I'm so happy that you're here with me. I'm so happy to be in the studio recording again. The what, what generally happens around the springtime, at least the last couple of years, is I wind up coaching three different baseball teams uh, for my kids who are little guys. And we just do a ton of baseball, and I'm at, there six, uh, at the field six, seven days a week. And it becomes nearly impossible for me to keep up with everything I want to be doing here. There's so much. Uh, I've got so many ideas, so much stuff I want to give to you guys, present to you. Uh, inclu- the podcast is one of those things, but there's so much else, which I'll talk about in a little bit that it becomes just impossible for me to keep up. Uh, and I should be smarter about letting you guys know and letting you know what's going on. Uh, and I do that through the email list, but I don't do that so well through the podcast because honestly, I, I think I'm going to be able to keep up just like everybody else. I think I'm going to be able to hold it all together. And then it just sort of falls apart. And in this case, and the same thing happened last year, the first thing to go was the podcast, unfortunately. And one of the reasons that happens is because there's so much back material. I feel like it's it, it doesn't miss out if I don't show up to do this because I've covered all the content once. I'm just going back through in season two here and cleaning everything up and making it a whole lot better for you. So all the information is there. Um, so yeah, so I've been doing baseball. And then once I get out of the habit of doing the podcast, just like you guys, once you get out of the habit of studying, once you get out of the habit of whatever uh, is moving forward, it's it's hard to get that inertia going again. So uh, to, to rebuild and get back involved, it just takes a little bit of effort. And like I said, there's so much else going on with physician assistant exam review. It's not as if the podcast is the only thing happening <laughs> uh, far from it. I, I've, if you want to see what else is going on, certainly go over and sign up for the email list. That's been the, the, the biggest thing going on is that I just, I send out daily emails uh, with tips, tricks, uh, philosophies on studying and on how to do the best you possibly can. And that's something that's become very important to me and I really enjoy doing it. And I think the community's gotten a ton out of it. So if you haven't signed up for that yet, please head on over to Physician Assistant Exam Review and go ahead and sign up for that. And maybe the easiest way to do that is to text PA exam, all one word, to the number 33444. And that'll shoot over a little message. It'll respond to you and ask for your email address. You pop it in and then you're all signed up. And like I said, there's some, I'm just, that's been a major focus for me over the past year or so is really pouring in to the, uh, the email content and the, the amount of information that I put out through there. So that's definitely something you want to get your hands on. Again, just text all one word, PA exam to 33444. And then here at the end, we'll talk about what else I've been working on. Uh, that's just been tremendous. So anyway, I want to get started before I spend the whole show just uh, talking about myself. So let's move it along um, and get started with diabetes and our pre-questions. You got to give me a little bit of a, uh, the benefit of the doubt here. This is I haven't recorded a show in a long time. What percentage of diabetes is type one? What percentage of diabetes is type one? Priming questions. That's what we used to call them. How is diabetes? How is diabetes, whether type one or type two, most commonly diagnosed? How is diabetes, either type one or type two, most commonly diagnosed? And then lastly, what's the treatment for diabetes type 1? How do we treat it? So as always, take a minute to think about those questions. Don't just, this is, needs to be a little bit more active. You're not just sitting in the car listening to me. You've got to participate a little bit. I don't need a ton of your brain, but I need some of it involved here. So 
what percentage of diabetes is type one? What is, what, how do you most commonly diagnose diabetes and how do we treat it? And those are the things we're gonna be covering today. So let's start with uh, the broad definition uh, and let's begin with insulin because that's sort of where diabetes begins. Uh, and insulin is produced in the pancreas by specialized cells called islet cells, beta islet cells. They make up about, this is kind of interesting, they make up one to 2% of the mass of the pancreas, but they use 10 to 15% of the blood supply. Right, so they're a little teeny spot and they use a huge amount of blood. And some of these things like islet cells always confuse me and get, make, give me a hard time. It's kind of like moon faces. It just means round face, right? It's, this, isn't, <laughs> this isn't like a big medical term, uh, but it's just something that's unfamiliar. Which, and, and things that are unfamiliar are difficult to remember. Islet cells, uh, islet means island, small island in particular. So it's just as, it really just means there's a little, little teeny area that produces insulin in the pancreas. Incre uh, and what does insulin do? Well, it increases cellular uptake of glucose for one. That's like our major thing. So when people say, uh, what does insulin do? It, it's a, it increases cellular uptake of glucose and it's a major anabolic hormone, right? So that's what we understand it to be. But that's kind of like saying, what was the cause of the civil war? And the answer being slavery, right? There's hundreds of reasons. There's economic reasons. There's, there's uh, influence from Europe. There's all this stuff going on. But the answer that everybody wants is slavery, right? Same thing here for us, for our purposes. The answer for insulin, what does it do? It increases cellular uptake of glucose and it's a major anabolic hormone. So it does a whole bunch of different things. And I'm gonna just run through a list real fast of things that it does. You don't necessarily need to know these. I wouldn't know them at all. I just want you to understand that it does a bigger job than simply to uh, affect glucose. It modifies numerous enzymes and how they function. It increases uh, replication of proteins through amino acid uptake. It increases amino acid uptake. It incre uh, increased fat synthesis. It induces glycogen synthesis. It, decreased level of it decreases the level of degradation of damaged organelles. It affects arterial muscle tone by forcing the walls of the muscles to relax. Um, it, ha it just has a lot of different effects. It's not just one thing that this does, although that's sort of not what we we're led to believe, but that's sort of the surface of it. So let's move on to talk about diabetes type one. When the, this is when the pancreas produces little or no insulin. So basically think about this as if the pancreas is not producing any insulin whatsoever. This makes up about five to 10% of diabetes. I'm sorry, <laughs> diabetes type one makes up about five to 10% of all diabetes making diabetes type 2, 90 to 95% uh, of diabetics. So this is actually a really small fraction of the population who have diabetes, but it's obviously a very important one. Uh, greater than 95% of diabetes type 1 is secondary to an autoimmune disease affecting those islet beta cells of the pancreas. Average age of diagnosis is 14. So this used to be known as juvenile diabetes. It isn't anymore, but it's just the onset is usually uh, when we diagnose it is around as a kid, sort of around that age 14, although people can go longer or be younger. Uh, normal or low body weight in these individuals. Diabetes is the leading cause of blindness in the United States and accounts for approximately 30% of end-stage renal disease in the United States. And obviously, um, as you've probably been beat over the head with, patients are at an increased risk for atherosclerosis with diabetes type 1 or diabetes type 2 for that matter. Clinical findings, early disease. So, these patients may not have any symptoms initially, right? So if we diagnose them at age 14, uh, they may have some elevated sugars before that, but they may not show any real symptoms. And they may present with mild symptoms of hypoglycemia, right? Because if they can't get the sugar into the cells and out of the bloodstream, then they will 
show the symptoms of hypoglycemia. Some of the more common findings for early disease symptoms would be urinary frequency, polyuria, polydipsia. You remember those, those come up a lot with diabetes. You can get orthostatic hypotension and dehydration. Weakness, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, weight loss is possible. Uh, blur, blurred vision, poor wound healing, and bacterial and fungal infections are, are not uncommon in diabetic, uh, untreated diabetics. Patients, if left untreated for longer periods of time, may present and may come in for the very first time in ketoacidosis. So these patients are very, very ill. This is completely unmanaged for long periods of time. Uh, diabetes, they have nausea, vomiting, they look terrible. Uh, polyuria, polydipsia, secondary to hyperosmolar state. They have abdominal pain, um, and they have changes in their mental status all the way up to stupor. And then fruity breath is sort of the key term here um, of someone who may be in ketoacidosis. Late disease symptoms. So if people have diabetes for long periods of time, it affects them in a lot of different ways, mostly micro and macrovascular uh, issues. So over time, I kind of think about uh, diabetes and sugar through the bloodstream as like little granules of sand in the arteries, right? So it just beats up on the arteries and the blood vessels over time. It's not that one or two days is a problem. It's that 20, 30 years is a problem. And you get that calm, constant inflammation, that constant aggression against those blood vessels. So one of the issues is early on, diabetes doesn't seem like a big deal, right? Patients don't feel any different. They don't have any problems. It's, it's the tests and things that tell them that they have this, but they don't actually know anything. Almost like high blood pressure. You don't feel it off the bat. It's what it does over a long period of time that causes the problem. So there's different presenting symptoms or different, different issues with people who are recently diagnosed with diabetes and people who have had it for 20 or 30 years. And you sort of have to separate those out in your head because uh, ju just the way that these make sense, those pictures will, will help you to understand the different stages of diabetes and the, and the different presentations patients will have. So one of the issues with late disease is diabetic retinopathy. After 20 years, I was kind of surprised to see this, after 20 years of being diabetic, 80% of patients will have retinopathy, which is a huge number, um, especially when you're diagnosed at 14. Diabetic retinopathy is, is, is leaky, weakened blood vessels, and then new weak blood vessels form and create scarring on the retina. Symptoms are increased number of floaters, blurry vision, vision that changes sometimes from blurry to clear, blank or dark areas in your visual field, poor night vision, and then colors appear to be faded or washed out. So you get this diabetic retinopathy. On fundal exam, your key terms here are going to be cotton wool spots, flame hemorrhages, or dot or blot hemorrhages. I think cotton wool spots, the other place they show up is with hypertension. Uh, long-standing hypertension, so keep those two things in mind. They can also get, also get orthostatic hypertension due to autonomic neuropathy and low plasma volume. Acanthosis nigricans is also associated with diabetes, uh, long-standing diabetes, right? That's that thickened uh, skin on the back of the neck, usually in African-Americans. Neuropathy is always an interesting one. This is the loss of sensation in limbs in a stocking glove distribution. So that always used to confuse me what that meant, stocking glove distribution, um, it, it just means, um, let's say it's in your hand. It does. It means that you lose sensation, not just in your pinky or not in your thumb. It's a distal to proximal loss of sensation. So it would be up to your uh, DIPs and up to your PIPs and, and, and so on and so forth up your hand. This is usually more common in the feet with diabetics, and it just has to do with blood flow. Oh, long-standing diabetics have nerve damage to the, uh, and it has to do with that microvascular damage over time. 
so what happens is these people get, they lose sensation, like I said, first in their toes and then in their midfoot, and then it just sort of climbs up. That's what stocking glove means. It means in, it comes on like a sock would come on. It's not one area of the foot um, based off of innervation. It has more to do with the blood flow. So if you think about it that way, it, it means that it comes up the way a sock would go on. So that's what stocking glove distribution means. It isn't, <laughs> it's one of those things, just like, like I said earlier, like moon faces. It's not a big deal. It's just a way to describe it. Uh, and these patients uh, lose sensation in their extremities, again, specifically in their feet first. And that's a diabetic neuropathy. The problem with that is they go on to develop these wounds, these ulcers, these sores. And this took me a long time to get my head around why that would happen. But if you stand up in one spot, like pretend I'm in surgery and I'm standing in one spot and I'm not moving. Well, after a little while, you start to get this feedback from the bottom of your feet that says, hey, you got to move. And the reason for that is, and you start to, and you just step side to side. The reason for that is the blood supply is cut off to the area of your foot where you're standing. If you think about it, that pressure stops the blood from flowing to that area. It's not a big deal. You can stand like that for a few minutes, but then you move to let a little blood come in before your foot falls asleep. Well, they can't feel a diabetic can't, or not, a person with not just a diabetic, a person with diabetic neuropathy, a person with neuropathy, loss of sensation in the bottom of their feet, can't feel when that blood flow has stopped to their foot for too long. They can't feel their feet fall asleep per se. They don't feel those pins and needles that tell them they have to move or the tissue is going to start being damaged. So it's just like putting a, a, a tourniquet on. You would start to have pain in that arm or in that leg once distal to the tourniquet because the blood supply was cut off. It's just like the same thing from having pressure on that area for a long period of time. But they don't notice this. They don't feel it. So what happens is that tissue begins to break down. And again, it doesn't happen all at once. This isn't like an instantaneous kind of thing. This is over days, weeks, or months uh, from not repositioning, not moving. It's almost like a decubitus ulcer, right? If you just lay in one spot and never move, you get wound, you get a breakdown of the skin from that pressure. It's the same thing here. The people don't realize that they're having that tissue breakdown. And since they don't look at the bottom of their feet, they don't see it. This is why it's so important for diabetics to get routine uh, visits to the doctor to have their feet checked or for themselves to be checking their feet because they can't feel that breakdown. And it gets worse and worse. And then you get infected. And um, 50 to 80% of non-traumatic lower extremity amputations are secondary to diabetes. I used to work with a foot and ankle guy and we used to do a fair amount of uh, BKAs because people would get these wound, these wound breakdowns, they'd get infected, and then they just couldn't clear the infection because of the way that their their vascular system was working. They could just never, ever get rid of it. Uh, so you wind up with a below knee amputation, and heal the wound. So you wind up with a below knee amputation in order to take care of that. All right, uh, they also get atonic bladders, again, from that uh, the loss of sensation there, erectile dysfunction, and delayed gastric emptying, all secondary to diabetes. Labs for diabetics. Uh, fasting blood glucose levels of greater than 126 on more than one occasion is diagnostic. So that's going to be the most commonly way we diagnose diabetes. And non-fasting blood glucose of greater than 200 milligrams per deciliter is also another way we could diagnose it. You could do an oral glucose, <laughs> oral glucose tolerance test, uh, which is the fa patient's fasting and, and then consume 75 grams of oral glucose. And then two hours later, the glucose level uh, if it's greater than 200 is also diagnostic. Remember, we do that in pregnancy. It, it more commonly to test for gestational diabetes is the uh, glucose challenge. 
You could also look at hemoglobin A1C, although there's debate as to whether or not that's useful for diagnosis. It's definitely useful for following patients who have diabetes and making sure that they're getting they're improving. But it is uh, questionable whether or not it's it's accurate enough to diagnose diabetes. So hemoglobin A1C indicates sugar levels over the previous three months. Remember, it's attached. It's it's testing sugar is attached to red blood cells, and red blood cells lifespan is about 90 days. So that gives us about a three month long picture of how those sugars have been over that time period. Uh, and so 3.8 to 5.7 is considered normal. 5.7 to 6.3 is considered at risk. And over 6.3 is going to be more or less diagnostic for hemoglobin A1C. I was doing some research, and we'll talk about it next week, about hemoglobin A1C and just the the range it can be in. So one of the things I've been thinking about is the specifics on your exam of, you know, everyone gets hung up on the, the, the specifics of, um, you know, is it going to be, is, is hemoglobin A1C going to be diagnostic on our exam or should I not pick that? Is it JNC7 or JNC8 for hypertension? Or they get, which one is going to be on our exam? And, and, and everyone gets very, very concerned about how this is going to work and what's moving forward and what, which there's the new stuff or the old stuff and what'll be on there. And one of the things you sort of come to realize is they're not trying to trick you. They're not trying to fool you. They don't want to trip you up on is, is, the patient's hemoglobin A1C 6.3 or 6.5, and is that considered diabetes or not? Um, I just don't see that coming up because anything that there's a question on, anything that different groups kind of disagree on, and these aren't magic numbers. It's, it's you know, the American Medical Association has one number. The American, uh, the Diabetes Association has another number, and they're all pretty close, but they're not exactly the same. So to me, don't spend so much time and energy and get so hung up on pre- the precise numbers on things like that. Like everybody has fasting blood glucose level of greater than 126, right, as uh, di- as diagnostic for diabetes. But if the hemoglobin A1C is, can be just a little bit different, then this isn't something they're going to ask a question on. They're just not going to try and trip you up in that gray zone. I wouldn't be too too concerned with that kind of stuff. Definitely know the broad strokes, the broad categories, where the sort of where scary land is, like up above seven, and where normal is down below six. But the very specifics, I wouldn't be too I wouldn't get too hung up on. And then patients may also present with glucose urea and ketone urea. Uh, so definitely do uh, test the urine. Treatments. We asked about treatments early on. All types of type 1 diabetics require insulin replacement therapy, right? So we can't just increase the, the uptake of insulin or the production of insulin. We, we need insulin therapy because we're not producing any insulin. So we got to have insulin therapy. Insulin's administered subcutaneously, so these are all injectables. And then insulins are categorized by the rate they are metabolized at. So how quickly they, one, work, and two, get broken down and, and taken out of the body. So we have rapid-acting insulins, short-acting insulins, intermediate-acting insulins, and then long-acting insulins. And what you're going to do is balance out uh, the patient's needs, right? So you're going to have something probably long-acting to be sort of functioning in the background to keep the levels overall low and then use some of your shorter acting insulins um, around mealtimes and that sort of thing. And then just balance out, this is going to be very individualized treatment depending on the patient's reactions to what they're eating. And we'll get to diet in a second, but obviously that's going to be very important for these patients as well. So I'm just going to run through listing out the names of some of these insulins. I'm not sure that you're going to need the very specifics here, I would know the categories that some of these fall into just just broadly so you have some idea uh, if a question has a specific name. 
you you don't I, I wouldn't know the specifics of the onsets and the effective durations, but maybe just know which category they drop into. I think that could be helpful. So your rapid acting insulin, and again, there are more than these. I'm just going to run through some of the more common ones. Rapid acting insulin is Lispro, which is also Humalog, or Aspirate, which is Novolog. Uh, onset there is five to 15 minutes. Peak is one to one and a half hours. And then the effective duration there is three to four hours. Short acting insulin is an example is regular, which is Human R or Novolin R. Onset's 30 to 60 minutes. Peak is two hours. Effective duration is six to eight hours. And again, this is something you might use before uh, a meal. Intermediate acting insulins would be NPH, neutral protamine hegadern, and this is or insulin zinc, zinc which is lenti. Uh, onset is two to four hours. It has a flat peak. The effective duration is about 24 hours, and typically two doses a day used in conjunction with a short-acting insulin is sort of uh, a nice place to, to keep people. And then there are longer-acting longer insulins. There's an extended release uh, extended insulin zinc, which is ultra lenty, and then insulin glargine, which is lantus. And the onset is 30 to 180 minutes. And then the peak is either flat for lantus or uh, ultra lenty has a 10 to 20 hour peak. And then effective duration is 20 to 36 hours. Diet and education are going to be really important for diabetics. They're going to have to measure their own uh, blood sugars over time. They're going to have to be doing their own insulin injections. They're going to have to be eating appropriately to help them maintain the proper blood sugar levels and so on, uh, diet and education is just going to be huge and, and really help these people. Remember, we're not talking about a short-term issue. We're talking about a lifetime issue from the age of 14, uh, 10, 11, 12, 14, 18 on uh, for the rest of their lives. So they've really got to be on board for this. It's not something that you can manage just as a, as a on an office visit once a year. Uh, this requires constant daily management, uh, every meal management. So the diet and education are tremendously important here. Um, so we're going to encourage them also in their diet to increase fiber and complex carbohydrates so you don't get those sugar spikes because that's going to be something that really drives their sugar levels up, right? Just like it does for everyone else. And then you're just going to overall monitor the carbohydrate intake. Patients, like I said, are going to have to monitor their own glucose levels. And then long-term, they're going to have increased risk for cardiovascular events. Uh, so you really have to be on top of treating hypertension and manage their hyperlipidemia. We talked about earlier, they're going to need regular visits to the podiatrist for foot care, secondary to, to neuropathy. And again, it, that's because they don't know what's happening. So you can't have someone say, I'm going to wait until it's a problem before I come in. They don't know what's going on. So it is a problem. And then regular diabetic eye exams, uh, like we said earlier, to, to look for those cotton wool spots. All right. So that'll wrap up diabetes type one. Next week, we'll talk about diabetes type two. Let's real quick do our study tip for today. And I sort of already covered our study tip for today which is don't get too bogged down in the details. Don't get too concerned about the specifics of what's coming, what's new treatment, what's old treatment, and what's going to be on the exam. One of the things I really like is when I'm studying and I come across material that has a vague answer. So for example, something has a treatment and there could be 10 or 15 different treatments for it. Well, then they're not going to ask me what's the best one if there isn't really a best one. So I don't really have to know that so well for my exam. You can kind of point these out as you go through in different areas where the, the material is conflicting or has multiple possibilities about what's, what's coming and what treatments are best. You, you, they can't ask you that stuff. They don't want to ask questions in the gray zone. They don't want to ask questions that are going to trip you up for no particular reason. They're going to ask you things that are tried and true that have very clear answers. I know it doesn't feel like that all the time and you feel like they're trying to trick you and you feel like they're going out of their way to look for minutia 
And they may be looking for minutiae. I'm not saying that that's not true, but they're not going to give you something that is questionable or that two different sources might give you two different answers for the, for the most common or the most important or the best treatment. They're just not going to do that. So don't get so hung up on, on those specifics. Like I said, the two that pop into my head would be uh, hypertension numbers because those are sort of have shifted a little over time or the very specifics of here, which insulin would you use in which instance? Like you could do that a little bit, but it's, it has a lot to do with your practice and how you function and what you keep people on. And next week we'll talk about diabetes type two and the medications there. And it's even more vague, uh, the correct answer for different situations. So they're not going to give you real specific questions on things that are kind of vague. And I hope that makes sense because I know I myself as a student and I get questions from students all the time, get very concerned about this and are, and spend a lot of time worrying and I think it's just misplaced concern, misplaced worry. I think study the bigger pictures, know the details that when they're specific, when they're very clear, uh, when the answers are obvious in the books, uh, when your lecturers present them as very obvious answers, know those. But those ones that are sort of in the gray zone, let those go and don't don't get too hung up on those and try, try to let that stuff go a little bit. All right, let's answer our, our pre-questions. Our priming questions. What percentage of diabetes type one uh, I'm sorry, what percentage of diabetes is type one? And uh, I'm sure you heard that as we went through, it's five to 10%. How is diabetes, whether type one or type two, most commonly diagnosed? And that's gonna be our fasting blood sugars of 126 on two separate occasions. All right, we talked about that. There are other methods to diagnose it, but really that's the one that is most commonly used right now. And then lastly, what's the treatment for diabetes type one? Um, I should have said medical treatment, I guess here. It's gonna be insulin. And the point is for you to remember that all type one diabetics have to get insulin because they're just, they're not producing it. So doing anything else just won't work. Uh, you've got to just, you have to give them insulin. And I guess you could have included their uh, diet and education as well. All right. Well, that'll wrap us up for today. As far as diabetes goes, so glad to be back. So glad to have you here. Uh, one thing I did want to talk about before we sign off for today is I've been working, like I said in the beginning, I've been working really hard on the email, uh, on getting those out to you daily, getting amazing tips, tricks, philosophies, ways to study, ways to do things um, through the email list. But the other thing I've been working on is the Physician Assistant Exam Scholars Program, which right now is a uh, monthly newsletter that goes out that is allows me to go much, much deeper into those different topics I don't get a chance to talk about as much here on the podcast. So for example, I spent the first two whole entire newsletters talking about studying and better philosophies and techniques for studying. We did one on job searches and how to do the best possible job searching, land your, your, the best position you could possibly land. We did one on uh, job interviews and how to get that job once you decide where you want to be. We've uh, this month, actually just this past month, I'm sorry, I'm recording this at the end of September, but it'll be the October 1st. The October issue will already have been sent out. It's going to be all on your study session and how to get the most out of your, out of, out of studying, of sitting down and get to go through the material and get the most done. So those are just some of the topics we've been covering, but it's been a ton of fun. I've gotten amazing feedback on it. I've really, it's really helped a lot of people. Uh, so definitely go over and check that out. That's the Physician Assistant Exam Scholars Program. Uh, and if you sign up for the email list, you'll see all about it. But that's what I've been most focused on lately and most excited about. And sort of the areas I've been focusing on with Physician Assistant Exam Review are the email list and the newsletter. So definitely go check those out. I'm really excited about both of those. All right, well, that'll wrap us up for today. Next week, like I said, we're going to be talking about diabetes type 2, and we'll be moving our way through the endocrine system. Take care. Good luck on your exams this week.